Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Not Just Yoga. I'm currently sitting in Lada because if you've seen the picture, that's where I record my podcasts. Floor space is very limited. I'm sharing some kneeling space at the moment with a bundle of mail, as in mail that you wear. I don't want to call it chain mail because that's not what it is but I don't mean mail as in letters, uh, that is wrapped up in a towel because it hasn't actually got a home yet. It did have a home, don't know where that home was, but that's Mark's job to put that away. So hopefully boy, next time I record the next episode, it'll have gone, but we'll see. There seems to be less and less yoga each time I record this, but I still find it quite odd that complete strangers will listen to a podcast about things I've seen on the telly and the books I've read. Although, seeing as our telly broke, there might not be quite as much viewing for a while. It's a good job we like books and board games. Even though I've just said that there seems to be even less yoga as the episodes go on, I'm actually going to jump straight into the yoga part. And I'm aware that a lack of visual aids may hinder my explanation, but I'll give it a go anyway. I've been looking at core muscles as the focus in class this last month or so. Studying anatomy is an ongoing thing for me in order to improve my knowledge on and off the mat. There have been a few discussions in class which have highlighted that quite a few people, when they think of core muscles, only think of abdominals or a six-pack if you like, yet there's a lot more to it. There are actually eight muscles of the core that are divided into four groups. The pelvic floor, transverse abdominis and diaphragm make up the deep cylinder of support. The internal and external obliques are what we commonly know as the abdominals. The multifidus and quadratus lumborum make up the back core muscles and the psoas is a hip flexor. Please excuse any words that I've pronounced wrong. I'm really not good at pronouncing words. I can spell them, I just can't say them properly. The core muscles have three main roles. The first one is to stabilise the spine in advance of sudden movement. This is known as isometric activation. And the muscles remain the same distance apart. The second role is to create movement and this is where the muscles move closer. This is known as concentric activation. Don't worry, I'm not going to test you on this. And the third role is to provide continuous support throughout a movement. The muscles tend to move further away, and this is known as isometric and or eccentric activation. So the first and third role are for stability, and the second role mobilises Now I hope you heard that last bit about the main roles of the core muscles because without realising my microphone was on the floor. So we'll see how that goes. I'm going to talk a little bit in this episode about the transverse abdominis. This is the deepest layer of abdominal muscle and it's the only one where the muscle fibres run more or less horizontally, hence the name transverse. It wraps around the body like a corset And there were several articles I read that actually referred to it as the body's natural corset muscle. 
its primary function is to hold the pelvis and ribcage still, thus stabilising the lower back. It also helps to contain and support the organs located inside the trunk area. It connects to the spine and goes along the midline of the belly, lower ribs and top of the hip bones. I'm not qualified to give medical advice. When I talk about this in class, I show you poses that target these areas, but there are plenty of resources available that are easy enough to find. One thing to note is that strengthening the transverse abdominis can contribute towards a strong core and many of the exercises that target this area involve stabilisation rather than crunching movements like sit-ups. I'll try and include a link to one of the articles that I found to be particularly useful when I was reading about this. Just a quick note about the other two muscles that make up the deep cylinder of support. These are ones that many have heard of and probably know their basic functions. These muscles are the pelvic floor and the diaphragm. I do mention the diaphragm quite often in breathing techniques that I demonstrate either in class or on videos. So one more thing about yoga, so we're moving away from the anatomical part now. I recently shared an article on social media about a yoga instructor who attended a class where it was assumed she wouldn't be able to keep up because of her size. The article goes on to talk about expensive leggings and tight crop tops being the public's perception of yoga. Now, I try to promote the idea that yoga, in its various forms, is available to everyone. It doesn't matter what you wear or what size you are. I've had several people come to class and then tell me afterwards it was completely different to what they expected. I mean, who was it that decided yoga should only be portrayed by super bendy people? That's what the media would have you believe. Yoga has nothing to do with the shape and size of your body. Yoga is adaptable. You make it fit for you. If a pose needs to be modified to better suit your body or your level of fitness, then that's what happens. We don't just exclude people because they can't do what the picture says. It's very, very rare that in my classes the same pose will be done in exactly the same way by everyone. In fact, that never happens because we adapt. And that takes us to the end of the yoga part of Not Just Yoga. I've only been recording for a little while and I'm already getting pins and needles in my feet from being in this weird position in the larder. But I'll continue. We get on to my favourite part now, the eyes, ears, seen and being. And again, I, I still find it odd that people listen to this. But anyway, well, I seem to have read a lot just lately. Or maybe it's because it's been so long since the last podcast. I'm still playing on with Game of Thrones, although there's so much out there to read. I always have several books on the go at once. Let's start with some good news. If you listened to the last episode, you'll be aware that I was on the hunt for two books in the Little Vampire series to complete the set, but I refused to pay over 80 and and £100 for them. Well, I stopped looking for a short while and I only managed to get them both for less than £20. Still over the asking price, but nowhere near those silly prices. I'm sure 
that with my constant checking, I probably single-handedly kept the prices high at the time. But who knows how the internet works. So, my English collection of The Little Vampire is finally complete. At the moment, I'm not collecting any books, but that will probably change soon. I saw a tweet about children's books, well, a tweet, a meme. I've seen it in various forms. And it said, stop shaming people for reading kids' books. Adult books are about sad people having affairs, while kids' books have a magic tree house or a worm driving an apple. You tell me who's winning. Now, I completely agree, but I didn't want to share that purely because, as it was written down in this tweet or meme, apostrophes were used correctly, but there were no capital letters. So I just couldn't bring myself to share it, and I couldn't be bothered to write it out again. Anyway, most of the other books I've read have been aimed at adults, especially the one by Eleanor Herman. It was called Sex with Kings, 500 Years of Adultery, Power, Rivalry and Revenge. I struggle with history. I love learning about historical lifestyles, societies and wars, etc., but I hardly ever remember any of it. There were several people written about in this book that I'd heard of before. But then again, I suppose it's the scandalous ones that are memorable. There's just two paragraphs that I'm going to share with you. And it's under the subheading, Legitimate Bastards. Kings usually legitimise these offspring by royal decree. This legitimisation was an official recognition of fatherhood leaving the children bastards, but bastards with high expectations. In 1360, King Pedro of Portugal wanted to legitimise his children with his mistress, Inez de Castro, whom he had married after their births. The Pope declared that the children could be legitimate only if their mother was crowned queen, and Inez had died five years earlier. Undeterred, King Pedro dug her up, dressed her skeleton in regal robes, and had it placed in a chair in the cathedral and crowned in an elaborate ceremony, which all the nobles were forced to attend. After that, no one protested when he legitimised the children. That's just mad. And then the other paragraph I'm going to read is about the Duc de Mazarin, or Duc de Mazarin, who had always been insanely jealous of Hortense Mancini's inclinations for other men, so much so that he had personally lopped off all the private parts of his collection of ancient Roman statues. His insanity knew no bounds, telling me. One day, he announced to his shocked servants that he was a tulip. He planted his feet in the ground and ordered them to water him, which they did. I suppose if you're getting paid to do a job, you better do it. It was this gentleman, then, who bought his wife's corpse from her creditors. He took it to France and carted it around with him from place to place. Those were the main things that stuck out for me in that book, I think. But I didn't like how the style of writing jumped all around. So someone would be mentioned, and then in the next chapter, they'd be mentioned again. And then the next, they might mention them again. It would have been much easier for me, anyway, if they'd have stuck to one person in one chapter. But I don't know. I didn't write the book. In a similar vein, I also read a book called Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know. This was written by Carl Shaw, who has worked in advertising, marketing and as a journalist. 
it definitely uses sensationalism to an extent, maybe too much at times. But overall, it was a thoroughly enjoyable and entertaining read. It's described as the extraordinary exploits of the British and European aristocracy, with stories of madness, murder, misery, greed and prof- profligacy. Gosh, I can't even say it, let alone know what it means. Now, actually, I didn't know what that last word meant. So, if anyone else is unsure, it means either reckless extravagance or wastefulness in the use of resources, or licen- licentious or dissolute behaviour. I think, to make it very basic, it means being a bit of a tart. Again, another one I'd recommend reading. Keeping with the historical theme, I read Medieval Woman by Anne Bayer. And this described a peasant's life in the Middle Ages, told through the eyes of Marion, who was a carpenter's wife. Each chapter focused on a month of the year. And even though the characters and setting were fictional, it's clear that a lot of research had gone into this in order to make it as informative as possible. I took a look at some of the reviews and while it has 4.4 out of 5 on one site with a total of 253 ratings, one reviewer described it as well written but ultimately pointless. We'll gloss over the fact that he spelt ultimately wrong. He said it fails to fulfil the promise of either fiction, providing a story, or fact, providing information. I think it did both of these things rather well. So, me being me, looked at other reviews he'd written. There are four. The latest one starts with, I don't usually write reviews. He only seemed to like one out of the four books that he wrote about. And again, I tried really hard to know the spelling mistakes and capital letter misuse. I'm going to put it down to smartphones and the tiny keyboard they have, because I've definitely fallen foul of that a few times. But this is not a podcast about a stranger's book reviews back on track. Next on the list is A Short History of the World According to Sheep by Sally Coulthard. I started reading it on Kindle Unlimited and thought it was that good that I bought it. I even bought it brand new. It was one of those books where every few pages I'd be saying, Mark, listen to this. Poor Mark said he wanted to read it, but it was probably only to keep me quiet. I definitely urge you to give it a go, because although it does sound really boring and dull, it's quite informative, and it links to so many other parts of history as well. It's one of those something-for-everyone books. While we're on the subject of factual books, I also bought another brand-new book, okay I had a bit of a sit down afterwards it was an impulse purchase it's only a a little thin book and it's called dinosaurs 10 things you should know and it's by Dr Dean Lomax it's 10 short essays that are really easy to understand aimed at adults but written in a very informal style and it's one I'll definitely be going back to see I told you I'd read a lot didn't I I've saved the audio book for last as I can't say that I've read it but don't feel it quite belongs in the ears part so I'll use it as a bridge between the two. I was given a copy of Young Bloods by Simon Scarrow several months ago before Christmas I think and it's the first one in a series called the Wellington and Napoleon Quartet although others have labelled it 
the Revolution Quartet. I think we can safely say that whatever the series is called, there are four books. So this turquoise paperback, it sat, well stood, I never quite know how to express this, on the shelf for quite some time. Every few weeks, I'd pick it up, look at the tiny writing inside, then put it back. I am not a fan of teeny tiny writing. I must be getting old. However, I had some free audible credits, so I got the first two out of four, just in case it wasn't clear there were four, of approximately 20 hours each. I've listened to the first one and was pleasantly surprised by how much historical factual detail was included. Bear in mind, I haven't read anything by Simon Scarrow before, but I believe this is the sort of thing he's good at. There were obviously a few fabricated events, but it tells the story simultaneously of both Wellington and Napoleon, the birth, the childhood, education and so on. It spans between 1769 and 1796. It's very detailed and it's one of the better historical fiction books I've read or listened to. Now it's time to complete the bridge and move on to the ears. Music wise, I've been sorting through CDs and I came across a dance mix from 2000 and something. It had about 20 of my favourite dance tunes on from all those years ago. So that's what I've been listening to in my car because there's no fancy DAB for me. Just about sums me up really with my fear of modern things. Not a fear though, more of a comfortableness if you like. I know what I like so I'll stick with that. And not just music, TV programmes as well. I wonder if that's why I've started to read so many history books. Because you can't change history, you know what's happened. So you kind of know what's coming. Podcasts have been a little more varied this time. Of course there's the old favourites which include You're Dead to Me and Series 5 of that has just been released as well. Betwixt the Sheets has had some interesting episodes including ones on vasectomies and corsets, two separate episodes, just in case you were wondering. Other episodes of this include beer, poppers, BDSM and medieval sex workers. So it's probably not for the faint-hearted, but it's quite a candid look at historical practices. A new podcast I've listened to is called Devils in the Dark. Um, My friend John told me about it. And I think I listened to all 15 episodes in less than two weeks. I've spent an extraordinary amount of time outside with my headphones on while I've been gardening. Having Covid during the nice weather meant that I was able to cut hedges, stream and mow the lawn and also accidentally dig up a wasp's nest. Devils in the Dark is about serial killers and it focuses on one well-known person each episode. I'd heard of most of them, but there were a few new ones. Alarmingly enough, it was these ones that turned out to be English. Could that be an indication of how US media coverage compares to UK coverage? Or is it just because the event may have happened before I started taking an interest in media coverage of events like this, i.e. when I was younger? I don't know. But while I found it compelling... Some of the episodes do go into quite some detail. So again, if that's not your cup of tea, I'd advise against listening to this one. Another new one is much lighter. 
and a little more comedic. It's called A Somewhat Complete History of Sitting Down and it's by Greg Jenner, the author and public historian who also hosts You're Dead to Me. From toilets to thrones, it looks at the language and culture of sitting. Honestly, I've probably made it sound really boring, but I assure you it isn't. Moving on now to the scene part. We've both had COVID, so we watched the telly box more than usual. We're still working through the X-Files, and at the moment it's the spin-off series The Lone Gunman, which is set between season 8 and season 9 of the X-Files. I'm not massively into sci-fi on the whole, but I do enjoy the X-Files and the original Star Trek series. Another repeat watch is Detectorists, a comedy with Toby Jones and Mackenzie Crook. Easy viewing, excellent writing and likeable characters. I think this is the third time I've watched it now. Mark's watched it way more than that. And I'm sure I'll watch it again too. I watched The Duchess for the second time with Keira Knightley. And she plays Georgina Spencer. Although I always want to call her Georgiana because that's how it's spelt. Who married the fifth Duke of Devonshire. She was well known for socialising, gambling, getting into debt and living with her husband and his mistress. This is one historical figure who I really enjoy reading about. And she was also the great, 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 great aunt of Princess Diana. If that's four greats, then I've got it right. There are other films about her, but this is the most recent one and it's the only one I've seen. While she seemed to be something of a fashion icon, she was also quite interested in science and studied geology, natural history and mineral mineralogy, as well as conducting chemistry experiments. If you've never heard of her or don't know much about her, just go and read a little bit. Fascinating character. I'm not going to say much about Purple Rain, other than the fact that we did indeed watch it as part of a green screen episode for the Silver Hedgehog podcast or Hogcast. My initial thoughts and opinions changed after discussing it, which surprised me. So, to listen to our discussion about it, which includes Mark, Gary, and David, look for episode 7 Prince's Purple Rain movie review, and that's the Silver Hedgehog podcast. The next couple of things we watched were mainly as a result of a Lancaster flying over our house. So we ended up watching a documentary called Night Bombers, which Mark said he'd had on video when he was little. That really shows our age now, doesn't it? On video, or VHS. There was another documentary about the Lancaster at war, which uses first-hand accounts from pilots and really enjoy watching that. I'd probably watch that a few times just to try and remember a little bit more of the information. However, just like with reading, I can't remember much of it and I seem to retain very little nowadays. Right, now for the dodgy ones I've seen. Oh dear. One thing that I would probably say to give a miss is a six-part programme presented by Nicolas Cage about the history of swear words. For starters, only the first two episodes use what would be classed as proper expletives. The other four don't count. And the one that should count is missed out completely. If you're into etymology, parts of it were interesting, such as the origin and meaning behind them. 
But for the main part, it was just people I'd never heard of talking about their use of the chosen word. Maybe I'm missing the point, but I really do think it could have been so much better. And I've saved the worst one for last, Ammonite. A film that had been on my watch list for some time. So, on a Saturday night, while Mark was out, I think he was a reenactment actually, I decided to give it a go. It's about the renowned British paleontologist Mary Anning, and it starts with her, played by Kate Winslet, on a beach in Dorset, searching for fossils. So far, so good. Then, it ends up being a film about the relationship between Anning and her female lover. The amount of research and effort that went into parts of this film, such as working with the correct tools, making sure the accents were appropriate, and so on, does seem like a waste of time when they just make stuff up for a personal life. There's no evidence of any kind of relationship for Anning, whether heterosexual or otherwise. So why, if you're going to make a film about a historical person, then why not make it as accurate as possible? If you want to make a film about a love story, create characters. I did read something about the director filling in gaps and not intending for it to be a biography so again why use a real person yes it's something i don't agree with you can't change history and i understand the need to fill in any gaps there may be and it's not the fact that she had a female lover she could have had any lover it's the fact that they just made it up anyway it was shortly after that that the telly broke but that's all sorted now and that brings us to the final part, Bean. One place I didn't go that I should have is London. It was supposed to be a 40th treat to myself, but I ended up with COVID. So that's been postponed. And just a quick note about that. I think my voice, after having COVID, has become a little deeper. I think that my voice was quite shrill and high. But just lately, it sounds different to me. But until I've recorded this podcast and played it back and compared it with the previous episode, I won't really know. Nobody else has noticed anything, so it's probably just all in my head. We did successfully go to a medieval murder mystery weekend at Raglan Castle. Everyone in the group had a part. Mine was small, as I'm not good at remembering stuff, and I hate acting and members of the public had to try and work out who done it. It was a great weekend where we ate and drank a fair bit, like most of our reenactments really. We were also introduced to a new game, Poetry for Neanderthals. Apparently it's family friendly. It involves getting hit with a stick. <laughs> so, family friendly? Okay. Right, I'll explain a bit more. It's a team game and one player chooses a card. Whatever word or phrase is on that card, your teammates have to try and guess in order to get points. You're obviously not allowed to say what is on the card, but in describing it, you're also not allowed to use words of more than one syllable. If you do, a player on the other team gets to hit you over the head with a stick or an inflatable bat, and you lose points. However, if the person wielding the stick forgets to say no before they use it, it doesn't count. Brilliant game, loads of fun, but 
It rendered me useless as I couldn't even make sentences when trying to describe the words on my cards and I mainly used disjointed single words. I did get to brandish the big stick on the next round though. Of course, I'm sure the game would be just as good if you were sober. A non-reenactment place we went to was Miserden in the Cotswolds, Gloucestershire. It was planned as a weekend away for us both turning 40 and it was the only free weekend we had at the time. Since last year, we've gone down the Airbnb route and stayed in dog-friendly cottages. Unfortunately, we had to say goodbye to Wiggy a few days before we went, so it was somewhat bittersweet. I try to keep this podcast quite positive and light-hearted, but also with the aim to show that there's more to life than being a yoga teacher. So I've shared that with you, as it is quite a significant thing. Now that I've said it, I'll move on. Miserden, what a gorgeous little part of the world. Here's a bit of history for you. Miserden derives from Musardera, or Musardera, which means Musard's manor. Musard was the name of the family which held the manor at the time of the Doomsday Book. Robert Musard built Miserden Castle in the 12th century and we walk through woods next to the protective ditch where it was built. It's such a tiny little village. In fact, the village is part of a parish. According to the 2011 census, the whole parish only had a population of 449 people. Miserdun has a shop, post office and a pub. What more could you ask for? We also visited Worcester Cathedral and Gloucester Cathedral. Gloucester is a magnificent building with spectacular architecture. Ever since we both read Pillars of the Earth, we found a new appreciation for these old buildings and how they were constructed. The medieval cloister in Gloucester Cathedral was also used in three of the Harry Potter films and Edward II is buried here. Worcester Cathedral was not as impressive It does contain the tomb of King John, but it also contains a lot of furniture and junk. Chairs, boxes, cleaning equipment and so on, all littered around, very distracting. Things just not even tidied away. I know there's ongoing building and restoration work, but it doesn't excuse the jumble of unrelated objects on view. I've printed out a list of all the medieval cathedrals in England, we visited four so far. We've got quite a long way to go. Give us a few years. I think I'll stop there and just remind you that you can contact me with any ideas on Facebook, where you'll find my page is called Say Yes to Yoga, Instagram, where I'm at Curly Girl Yogini, or you can email Say Yes to Yoga at hotmail.com. I've added an extra bit at the end of this podcast I was listening back through it and it feels like I kind of glossed over the whole thing about Wiggy and it's not because I don't want to talk about it it's because it's just too difficult it's too upsetting I don't want him to just be a footnote in my podcast you all know what I thought of him if you know me and I could go on and on for days and days but I won't I just wanted to point out that 
he deserves more than just a, a passing sentence. He was a massive part of our lives. And, yeah, it's difficult. But, as I've said many times before, I try and make this podcast as honest as possible. And that's just another piece of it. So, I've added this little bit while I'm standing at the bottom of my garden, looking out. It's quite dark, actually. Um, Looking out over into the field. No microphone, just talking into the phone. So if you can hear it, great. If not, sorry. (laughs) Main technology, you know that doesn't mix well. Thank you for listening and I'll be back again soon. Bye. Thank you.